1: Hello and welcome back to the Indian Religions podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. James D. Reich, who is Assistant Professor at the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Pace University. We'll be speaking on his brand new OUP 2021 book, To Savor the Meaning, the Theology of Literary Emotions in Medieval Kashmir. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Raj. I'm flattered to be here. Great to have you. Now, the subtitle of your book, The Theology of Literary Emotions in Medieval Kashmir. Let's start with the last part of that, Medieval Kashmir. What on earth is going on in Medieval Kashmir, and and, and what are you studying, or who are you studying as
0: part of your, your work? Okay, so Medieval Kashmir, it's not a... Um, strictly technical definition it's not like i have some kind of um you know dates where it's like i between this year and this year but medieval kashmir generally encompasses something from let's say the ninth century to um about the year 1225 um in kashmir which is the the very far northern part of india um as i'm sure many listeners know and This time and place was a kind of um, golden age of intellectual development. It was like there was a flourishing of philosophy, uh, arts, um, and particularly literary theory, which is what I'm interested in, that seems to be related to um, a kind of atmosphere of syncretism, an an idea that people could borrow ideas from each other and mix ideas and experiment a little bit that um, Uh, created some very, very long-lasting and well-known and influential ideas in the history of South Asia. Um, And uh, it ended in the 13th century, um, we now think, with um, actually the invasion of a Bhutanese warlord, uh, which is described in the second Rajaturangani, sort of like destroyed the culture of the valley, uh, the learned culture of the valley, and it, it never quite attained its previous prominence. But this period was um, was really kind of golden era and had some really amazing ideas that were developed.
1: And so now that you've given us sort of the lay of the land, um, what, what are some of these ideas or people? Like what, what particularly are you looking at? Like what's your data for the
0: study? Well, my book um, is looking at literary theory, at people who are trying to understand Um, how it is that poetry communicates emotions and why that's valuable, what that does to us, why it's valuable, why we like it, why we should keep doing it. Um, I tell the story basically of three literary theorists. Um, The first two of whom are quite well-known. The first is Anandavardhana. The second is Abhinavagupta. The third is someone named Mahima Bhatta, um, who's slightly less known than the other two. And... um, These theorists are sort of part of a trend in Kashmir of borrowing ideas from religious philosophy, religious terminology, to discuss literary theory. And the book tries to sort of explore uh, why they do that, how that came about, and what the relationship is for these theorists between literature and um, what we would call religion.
1: And do you think in this context that one can make that separation between the religious and the literary
0: you can make the separation um, in terms of discipline, in terms of genre. Um, people writing these books, say Abhinavagupta writing his commentary on the Dwanayalaka, he's aware that he's writing a book on a particular subject on literary theory. And um, he mentions religious ideas, but he doesn't go into extensive. Abhinavagupta, just to back up for a second, was someone who was um, an extremely well-known and prolific theologian who wrote in a tradition, in a subset of what is now called Hinduism, um, that's called Shaivism. And he's someone who spent most of his life writing really, really detailed theological treatises and philosophical, philosophical theological treatises. But when he writes his commentary on the Dvaniyaloka. He's aware that he's not doing theology per se, and he's, a little, he's has actually a little shy or hesitant about going off too much on theological issues. Um, nevertheless, there is a connection, and he indicates it, but um, he and a lot of other theorists seem to be aware that talking about Sahitya, what, what became called Alankara Shastra, which wasn't called Alankara Shastra in that century, is at least disciplinarily different from religion. Now, um, I argue that for for these three theorists, the two issues were bound up with each other and were related, um, in at, at points in inextricable ways. Um, so ultimately, there is overlap. And if you're a theologian like Abhinavagupta, who's thinking about the nature of the universe in general. Um, you know literature is part of the universe and the universe is a religious space for abhinavagupta um but there were genre say, distinctions that they observed yeah
1: no uh please continue but what i was about to ask is would you say that's the key takeaway of your book uh, in terms of the relationship between literature and religion
0: yeah i think that's one of them i mean i think um particularly for abhinavagupta and also for Mahimabhata, i think it's it's not really possible to understand their literary theories without understanding how they're woven into the broader religious context. I think when they're arguing about literary theories, they have a lot of theological issues in mind. And that's certainly one of the takeaways of the book. Another takeaway of the book is, um, to be a little more specific, I think one of the major things that they're arguing about, aside from the kind of like nature and status of fiction is the nature and status of language. And I think one of the big, one of the key theological issues for these people in this century is um, what exactly is language and how does it relate to uh, God or the ultimate?
1: Well, that's very much um, a question of what's real, right? What's Maya, what's real, or how do we navigate or or relate to or or describe what's real?
0: Yeah, what is the status of apparent reality? Um, and how exactly does language mediate between our cognitions and reality? Yeah.
1: How did you find yourself writing a book about this?
0: Um, I it, took a class with, uh, Monius, the late Ann Monius, um, may she rest in peace, uh, on, um, aesthetics and religion in Indian history. And I, um, was re- Like many um, graduate students, I think I was really overwhelmed by Abhinavagupta. He's just so cool in so many ways. <laughs> he really captures a lot of people's attention. And um, I was sort of interested in the arts and in literature and in literary theory and also had an interest in religion. And I realized that, you know, there's a lot of at least terminological overlap going on in this century. And so I, I started poking around for ways to think about that um and i originally wanted to do a project on ruyaka this later theorist ruyaka because he's someone who accepts um anandavardhana's innovations in the field but there's an there's another text that we know he wrote called sahitya mimamsa and there is a text that you can find called sahitya mimamsa that doesn't accept those innovations and so i thought oh, this is really cool. I'll look at like what happens when a literary theorist changes his mind about one of the major issues of the day. And I went to read with Larry McRae, and he just, like, the first day I was there, he was like, yeah, that Sahih momsa is not Riyaka's Sahih Timimamsa. I was like, really? He was like, to his credit, he said, you sh- no, you shouldn't take my word for it. You should never take anyone's word for it, but I can promise you that that's not. <laughs> that's not. And I think he was right about that. Um, so we started reading Riyaka, we started looking at his commentary on a text called Kavya Prakasha, and then we decided to read a little Mahima because Riyaka also wrote a commentary on Mahima Bhatta. And Mahima Bhatta is this, um, this literary theorist who is not a Buddhist, but his text is filled with quotations from the most famous Buddhist philosopher of all time, this guy Dharmakirti. And so I was very struck by that. And, uh, really the project began as a way of trying to figure out why it is that this guy Mahima spent so much time quoting Dharmakirti in arguments about literature.
1: Um, and Monius, may she rest in peace indeed, she happens to have been my um, my uh, advisor's advisor academically. Um, oh, really? Yes, and we just recently had um, Lawrence McCray on the podcast. With, oh, really, uh, uh, with Eagle on their their joint uh, publication, uh, perhaps we should do sort of these podcasts in the future where there are a couple of you and we talk about books that really relate with each other. Because we also recently had um, Ben Williams on the podcast, so there's like it, it, there are these little enclaves right. of, of of scholarship and thought. It'd be kind of an interesting thought experiment. As a, uh, I got to be careful to think out loud on the podcast because then I might be bound
0: <laughs> to whatever comes out of my mouth. Well, you know, I also run a <laughs> podcast with Ben Williams.
1: Really, you 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 host one with him, or
0: how, well, how does that work? One we host one on Patreon. We've been doing it for about a year and a half now. He's an he's an old friend of mine from grad school. He also studied with Ann Monius and with Paramalpatil, Patel, who was my other major advisor. Um, it's called Close Readings, and we sort of do an episode every two weeks where we work our way through a text and we look very closely at the Sanskrit in translation and how it means what it means.
1: It's fascinating. So let me let me share that all of my worlds are colliding. Uh, there's a couple of different, I guess, um, pieces to the Raj pie. You know, I do the podcast. Obviously, as you know, I there's scholarship, um, and I do, you know, coaching work, mostly personal growth work. And sometimes people really want to dive into text together. Mm-hmm. a variety of different things that keep me occupied apparently, but you know, it seems that gone are the days when, you know, uh, the spiritual life and the academic life were compartmentalized. when, uh, I kid you not, it was last week I was meeting with uh, one of my weekly students, very, very astute, uh, guy bright used to be a lawyer and we, um, uh, our primary work isn't personal growth as much as it is textual exegesis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a uh, very spiritual guy. He wants to understand sort of the spiritual uh, import significance of a particular text, and he says to me, "You know, I just heard a podcast with Ben Williams and and this guy named named James Reich. He said, <laughs> um, and you should have him on your podcast.'" And I said, "Well, he's actually um, <laughs> he's actually scheduled for my podcast next week." I'm like, "Here oh, I am, like, here you are." Um, strange but true. Um, that's very funny. Cool. Yeah, that's funny. so funny. I forgot what I was going to ask you next. Oh, what surprised you most about this work? Like, what are you, did you kind of, when you discovered this train of thought or Mahima did you kind of have a hunch as to where this was going or, or, or or did something really throw you for a loop without you ended up finding?
0: I had a hunch where it was going because I had done some work on Abhinavagupta and I had a kind of clear understanding of Abhinavagupta's stuff. Um, not to get too much into the weeds, but Abhinavagupta is really interested in um, a, an older theologian and grammarian named Barchahari. Barchahari had been incorporated into his tradition of Shaivism, um, probably against the wishes of previous people in that lineage who did not like Barchahari. And um, Raffaele Torella has argued that that happens because they need to argue against Buddhists, because Barchahari represents a kind of inverse metaphysics and theology from Buddhism. So the fact that Mahima Bhatta spends so much time quoting Buddhists, I thought might have something to do with that. And I still do think that. Um, in terms of what surprised me, you know, and this might be a, more, a little bit more of a humorous story, but like as I read more and more of Mahima Bhatta, um, I wasn't as compelled by his literary theory. His Literary theory is very dry, very literal minded. Um, he proposes a lot of emendations to verse classical verses that I think actually make the verses not as good or are, are not, um, as interesting. And so by the end of writing the book, I was kind of like, oh, you know, i you know, it's interesting the role he plays in this century, but I'm not really so into him. And then as I was editing the book, I reread his opening and closing verses for the whole text. And something about his personality just struck me as um, so endearing. <laughs> uh, I just want to read his, his, his uh, there's only three verses. So I'll just read his opening verses, if that's okay. Cause I, Please, I that'd I be would, great. I thought I would pull these up because they're so um, fun. So he has one opening verse where he says, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to refute on theory. And then he has three verses. And the only thing you need to know is that the mirror and the moon are the names of two texts on literary theory that um, Mahima seems to have disappeared by his time. He He doesn't have access to them. So he's lamenting not having access to them. He says, this effort of mine is made for those like me, since there's nothing in the world that pleases everyone. When the sun appears, some things bloom, some burn, and others shut down. My mind, in a rush to fame, hasn't had a chance to look properly in the mirror. So how could it know if it put all its jewelry on crooked? On the path of literary theory, which is very dark, it's easy for my voice to stumble at every step, since it charges ahead without the light of the moon. However, let educated people set all that aside and attend to what bits of wisdom there are, for they are not trained to be like sieves catching the chaff and letting the rice fall through. And then he says in his very final verse, after saying that he wrote this whole text in order to educate his grandchildren, which is totally adorable, and I can't think of another example of a text like that in Sanskrit, he says, speaking this thing which has not been depicted before by anyone else, I am sure I will find a place in the memory of the wise, whether that be because they seek a cause for laughter or because they wish for the joy of reflecting on the the true nature of some new subject. That's the very final <laughs> verse of this text. <laughs> and,
1: wait, wait, I've got to write that down be sure to find a place in the memory of the wise. Okay. I'm putting that on my personal CV website. Yeah. You know, okay. I've heard that back
0: friends, even those who don't do Sanskrit and they're like, I'm putting that above my desk. <laughs> um, at the height of like editing a book for publication, the, the fact that he's willing to be so personal and so kind of open about his insecurities was really kind of amazing to me. And, um, This is a kind of roundabout way of saying, like, did anything surprise me? I was surprised by the end of the project to find myself kind of wishing that I could hang out with Mahima Bhatta.
1: That's fascinating. It really is fascinating to get a sense of the person uh, behind uh, the work. It's both hazardous and deeply fulfilling when one does so. um, Because one can understand... Well, it, for me, anyhow, sometimes you don't know if you're quite reading someone right. But when you do, it, it's deeply illuminating because then you have the context, right? It's just like a text message from someone you know versus someone you don't. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. Y- y- getting a sense of where they're coming from or their personality, if that's even possible. And I, I do believe it is actually. I, <laughs> um, uh, once upon a time, I had a, a relatively clear idea of who I thought Valmiki was, but that's a whole different podcast. Um. <laughs> What I want to ask you, I totally forget now I'm down this rabbit hole of um, conjuring up personalities. Okay, so literary theory, James, is this discussion confined, um, can, can, is it confined within sort of Indic ideas and, and theorists and theologians about Indic literature? Or is there a bridge to literary theory in a more broad sense, do you think?
0: Well, the, the texts themselves are concerned entirely with Sanskrit, um, what we, what, what you might call uh, belles lettres, which I, it's not a term I use in my book because it feels very silly to use it, but it, you know, it, it is.
1: Because we're not in the 18th century.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they're concerned with kavya, I guess maybe it would be a better term. And that includes um, what we would call poetry and also what we would call plays. And there's a lot about what they're doing that is highly contextualized, but I do think a lot of the issues are more broadly applicable. Um, for example, I will give you two issues. One relates to, back to what we were just talking about. One of the splits between Abhinavagupta and Mahima Bhatta, I think, in my interpretation, is that Abhinavagupta is someone who is very invested in the idea that a text can really and truly encode the mind and experience of an author and transmit it to a reader at a distance. Um, And he's very interested in this in terms of Kavya. He's also interested in this in terms of his religious philosophy. He starts out some of his philosophical texts saying something similar. Um, And he really does seem to be interested in this idea that an experience can take form outwardly in a kind of congealed. It's almost like I think of it sometimes like there's um, water, right? Your mind is water and you freeze it into an ice cube and then you can hand it to someone else and then it melts in their hand. He thinks of texts in this way um, and he thinks of the experience of emotions in literature as the experience of something real and not just real, I think, but more real than ordinary life. Mahima Bhatta, on the other hand, is someone who thinks of literature as an, an elaborate type of illusion. When you come to a conclusion about, um, oh, this character is feeling sad, that's an illusion. The character there is no character, there isn't really sadness there, but it has a kind of instrumental value because it catches your attention and helps you pay attention to the moral training that a text provides, which is really important. And um, so in other words, he's very much in the, um, literature is the sugarcoating on bitter medicine kind of thing that, that, uh, princes, there's a lot in the background about educating princes. And you get the feeling that like an aristocratic context where this prince is going to inherit the kingdom, no matter who he is or what he's like, there's a lot of anxiety about these like completely idiot, fail son, selfish princes who like, we have to figure out how to turn them into real adults because they're going to run the kingdom. Um. And literature is like one way to do that. And he thinks of it as basically false and illusory, but helpful in certain ways. And I, I think that could be fruitfully applied to what we were just talking about. Like, can you actually capture the mind of an author from the past? Or are you always going to be um, kind of experiencing something that's not really there, but maybe useful for various purposes? Um, the other way that it that it might uh, relate to contemporary stuff is this issue of moral training. Like, what does it really mean for literature to be morally valuable? Um, for Abhinavagupta, for reasons I argue in the book, and I'm I'm getting some of this from. I have to give a shout out to um, Danielle Kuneil and also Guy Levitt, who kind of pioneered the study of this stuff. Um, Abhinav Gupta thinks that literature is morally valuable because it trains you to have the right sort of emotions at the right time with respect to the right things. That there's that emotions are a very important part of moral life and taking pleasure or displeasure in the right sort of stuff is part of what it is to be um, a moral person and that that's what literature does for us. Someone like um, Mahima Barta has le- a less high esteem of emotions, I think. He thinks of them as something we're very interested in but not necessarily valuable in and of themselves. Um, and he has this kind of pedagogical approach where like uh, you use emotions to keep people's attention while you're telling them stuff. But there's the the atten- the emotion and the stuff you're telling them are separate. Um, and those are, I think, two different ways of approaching lots of different things in contemporary life. And we can think about literature that way. You can think about um, something like, you know, children's movies or children's TV and the kinds of arguments we have about what's that, what those do to children and are they training them in the right way. You can think about pedagogy. Like I, I find Abhinavagupta's theory to be more congenial, a more congenial way of thinking about literature. I'd rather think of literature that way. But Mahima Bhakta's ideas I've realized over the years are, are quite good as a pedagogical technique. And, I, and in the classroom, as a teacher, I actually find myself doing that sort of stuff a lot you know, like I don't, I don't necessarily think in the classroom that jokes are so important in and of themselves. There's nothing like really in a deep sense, pedagogically or morally useful about students laughing. But if I see the student's attention flagging, I will tell a joke, right? Or I'll tell jokes as a way of like building a bond between us so that they have more of an understanding of what I want to say. But the jokes are kind of it's not not exactly instrumental. I mean, I'm not like a sociopath who's just completely alienated from my students and just manipulating them into laughing, but I have a kind of like um I'm aware when I'm teaching that I need to I need to sugarcoat things a little bit, you know. Um Yeah. Yeah, I definitely Those two those two poles I think are definitely relevant outside the realm of Sanskrit literature.
1: Yeah, those two poles Come up a lot in how I perceive other people in works and reality in general. You know, um, w- whether I'm working with someone one-on-one or trying to conjure up the, <laughs> the personality of someone long gone, there. You know, we're all unique, and without question, and we live in you know unique times. Um, but there are certain um, there are certain discernible patterns of human behavior, and one of them to overly simplify is, well, is someone primarily a thinking type or a feeling type? We, we all do both, obviously, but without question, the vast majority of people will be one over the other. Yeah, And so, um, or let's just say you have these two faculties, thinking and feeling, you know, the the critical thinking is important. Uh, um, it may not always be the most soulful or applicable to the human experience insofar as people are moved by emotions. And when people do read works of literature, that seem to understand them better than anybody they've ever met, that's a very powerful experience. It's an emotional yeah. experience, or moments of awe, or moments of joy, or moments of of what have you. And there seems to be this sort of um, emotional mind and this intellectual mind, and I think those two pull.
0: That's how it. That's how I'm yeah. hearing what you're saying. Anyhow, yeah, I mean, I I I, I, I do think that emotions are. Um, an inextricable part of the moral life like I think you know for example think about you know being married to someone or having a friend and and them saying like you know I could murder a baby if I felt like it I've just decided for rational reasons that it's not the right thing to do that's not really someone you'd want to be close to right you don't want someone who's just decided rationally that they couldn't do this evil thing you want someone who actually feel would feel disgusted like would be unable emotionally to go through with it, right?
1: Well, we have um, I- injustice. One can argue that uh, our conceptions of justice are by and large attributed to our circumstances and conditioning. I don't entirely buy that because no matter how young someone is, you, you go and you smack them upside the head and they're kind of like, what the hell do that for? You know? right. We have this sense of, you know, so, so, so justice or a sense of justice, it's visceral. Right. It's, it's, it's not intellectual. Mm-hmm. You can intellectualize it, but you have a sense that someone has to pay or you have a sense that you've been wronged. Yeah. And it's just so ingrained in us. And I would say it's definitely predominantly an emotional experience. And Obviously, we, we intellectualize and rationalize, particularly when it comes to a legal system that has to mete it out somehow. But
0: um, yeah, without yes, question. Aristotle mm-hmm. says somewhere, um, if you know that something is wrong, philosophy can explain to you why it's wrong. But if you don't know that it's wrong, philosophy can never explain to you that something is wrong.
1: That's brilliant, actually. That's um, that's a great way of of that's a great way of, of expressing this idea that there's an element of knowing that's instinctual, and if one doesn't have that instinctual element of knowing, it it, it can't be computed into someone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah fascinating um so it looks like folks can uh learn about an historical period and history of ideas from your book and they can also learn about um uh, much broader topics <laughs> by I extension hope so, yeah <laughs> <I hope so.
0: laughs>
1: what would you love uh most for folks to take away from the study
0: to take away from the study i mean um i mean one thing is uh you know just a kind of appreciation for the depth of of thought and analysis that happened in this time and place. That I would say for the average American is um, very foreign, and they don't know much about it. And there, there are there obviously exceptions in the United States, but I mean, generally speaking, people don't know much about this time and place. And you know, I would like people overall to just think like, "Wow, this, there was some amazing and profound thinking that happened in this time period." That um, That we can learn something from um i also think you know another takeaway you know for someone who's not necessarily interested in the history of south asia per se some deeper attention to what we're talking about when we talk about literature because like these these kinds of issues i find come up in lots of different ways outside of Sanskrit outside of South Asia. So if if you ask an average person on the street, like, do you think it's important for kids to read books? Or do you think it's important for a kid to read this kind of book and not that kind of book? Most people would say yes. And if pressed, they'd be able to give you some answer. And that answer, I think, would encode a lot of deeper values about the world and about human life. And you know, you could think like, oh, literature is just kind of for fun, or maybe it helps you like read better, or it's a way to pass the time. But you know, for a lot of people in a lot of deep ways, I think, even in an incohate way, um, art and poetry encodes a lot of really, really deep values. And those are often tied up in 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 way, in, in, in really interesting ways with things that we would call religion. Or that we would not want to call religion, but can be shown to be religious or religiously derived in certain ways. Um,
1: well, well, the connection between literature, what we think of as literature and religious ideas, I mean, it's, it's immeasurable and it's covert. It's why um, in South Asia, uh, just as most cultures, I mean, religious ideas are perpetuated how through narrative. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. Uh, the, the um, uh, think of Northrop Fry, Think of, I mean, uh, think of the significance of the Mahabharata for everything that comes mm-hmm. after it. It's sort of that connection. Um, so, and also the other thought that comes to mind is, you know, we, we do a lot of um googling and we do a lot of reading to uh, to for content to put more stuff in our mind. Yeah. Um, literature actually changes the vessel. It's not just putting something in your mind. It's person formation in many ways. Right. And that's why it's so memorable. And that's also why you read a great book five times and you, you relate to it differently the fifth time. Yeah. yeah. You learn something more because it, it relates to the very uh, the human experience. Right. In some way, right. it's not just
0: data. Right. Yeah. 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 It's not just data. Although, you know, I I think for Mahima it, it kind of is. Like I think it, it kind of he does think of literature as a kind of delivery mechanism. He thinks of language as a kind So this is another okay. but I thought
1: you were team Abhinav Gupta. I am team Abhinavagupta.
0: Gupta, yes, I am team Abhinavagupta. <laughs> um but this relates to a deeper issue about language. Uh because Mahima thinks of literature as just a delivery mechanism for ideas, right? That you you could have learned another way, except you're too easily distracted. So literature helps you pay attention while you're learning it. But he also thinks of language as a tool for conveying ideas. He and he, and, and this is very different from someone like Abhinavagupta, who thinks of language as um, at the very heart of the nature of reality language, what we are using right now when we speak derives from a kind of like linguistic seed that is right in the very heart of what we would call God. Um, so oh, it, so yeah. language goes all the way up. And those, those two, di- you know, um, those are two very different ways of thinking about language and they cash out as different ways of thinking about literature.
1: One seems to be much more aligned with the, Uh, religious philosophical ideas of ancient India in terms of the divinization of sound, in terms of sound being essential in some sense, rather than merely a vehicle
0: for um, meaning? Well, I think, uh, yes, but I think that Mahima also has a religious background for his instrumentalization of language. Like, for example, there's this older philosopher, um, Somananda in Kashmir, who also had this idea that language is a kind of a tool. And he was very against Shaivas, who tried to argue that um, uh, the ultimate is a kind of linguistic plenum. And um, he 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 placed language at a at a slightly lower order of reality. So I think there are actually different religious views on the nature of language that are being um, argued about here. Mahima Butte at one point compares language to uh, he calls it like a leather water bag, a dritti, which is not a word I knew before reading this text, like for carrying. It's just like I would imagine not. <laughs> you use it to carry water somewhere. You could have used a bucket or something else, but you, the point is to get the water there. And I, I think there is this um, trend in certain areas that uh, like Buddhists certainly feel this way, that language obscures reality. It doesn't um, reveal it. Reveal it. Um, and I think, you know, this I know less about, so I'm going out on, on a little bit of a limb here, but I, I think Shankara also has this kind, I think this may be part of the breakdown between Shankara and someone like Mundana Mishra, um, is there an element of truth in language or is it only instrumentally useful for certain purposes?
1: Fascinating. Is there anything else about the book that you hope to be touch on?
0: Um, Maybe, but I can't remember what it is right now if there is
1: sounds like uh, the Yagya is complete then. <laughs> yeah, perhaps
0: it is, yeah. <laughs>
1: well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having
0: me. Um, I'm, I'm happy to have a chance to talk about this.
1: Yeah, so for those of you listening out there in the timeless time of podcast land, we've been speaking with Dr. James D. Reich of Pace University on his brand-new 2021 OUP publication to savor the meaning, the theology of literary emotions in medieval Kashmir. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating the utility and power of language. Take care.